This sermon is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Pastor Tony Cahoot. Well, we're going to try our best to wrap up tonight. In 2 Peter, I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn there with me. We have been in these two books, 1 and 2 Peter, for the last two years. And so we're coming down the home stretch, and I pray that it's been an enlightenment to you. And I want to pick up with verse number 12 tonight, and this might be an awkward place to jump in for some of you because there's a mountain, an ocean of Scripture behind these verses that has set the tone. But uh, I want to get through them. I want you to look with me in these remaining verses, 12 through 18. Peter is saying this, looking for and hastening to the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. I mentioned last Wednesday, and I do want to reiterate, uh, perhaps I mentioned a little bit on Sunday as well, when you look at this passage of Scripture that there's coming a day when the earth shall melt with fervent heat. Be resting assured in your heart and your spirit that even though we are living in a nuclear world, and there is very likely going to be some type of nuclear standoff and engagement of some sort, no one will be able to claim the victory of destroying the earth other than the Lord Jesus, he promises in Revelation that he is going to give us a new heaven and a new earth. And uh, chapter 21 emphatically declares that. And so when Peter is giving us this last home stretch exhortation, he, he drives the point home and he repeats it all over again, a theme that he's been proclaiming throughout chapter 3. Verse number 13, <clears throat> Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. That's going to be a glorious day when we don't have to worry about sin anymore. Amen. Wherefore, in verse 14, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, and I think every Christian ought to be looking for that, God's peaceful world. Peter says, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. You know, no matter how much we read our Bibles, go to church, serve the Lord, love the Lord, try to walk that straight and narrow, and try to do everything the Lord has taught us in his word, the thing about it is that if we're not careful, we can become so saturated with religion and, and rituals that you've heard the old saying that we can become so earthly good or heavenly minded where we're no earthly good. You, you've heard that old saying before, but I think it's true in the sense that we have to remember the fact that we do live in a sin-cursed world, and there is absolutely nothing we can do to get around it, to escape it. It's before us day and night. 
But we ought not to be so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good. God does want us to be a light in this world of darkness. He wants us to let our light shine. He teaches us that principle all throughout the scriptures. But when I read this passage, it also reminded me of a couple of things that every one of us, because we're all sinners, the word says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the word also says in Romans 3 that there is none righteous, no, not one. All of us, all of us are guilty of that. But Peter is saying here, being found of him in peace without spot and blameless. I'm so glad and thankful that God never gave up on me when he could have multi-trillions of times. And I'm sure you feel the same way about yourself. And I'm so glad that God doesn't just strike us down, kick us to the curb when we do have spots and when we are at blame. But Peter is encouraging us, he's admonishing us as we live out our lives and wait on the Lord's return, that we walk circumspectly. I was using that scripture this week. If God did strike us all down every time we messed up, or if he gave us 10 chances and then said, you're out, three strikes, you're out, whatever, it would end the human race. Because all of us are guilty of that. In verse number 15, quickly, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Even as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Now, I want to mention something about this. This is an interesting verse. In fact, I want to reference this in Galatians chapter 2. Fellas, can you get that on the screen for me? Galatians chapter 2, and I want to read verses 11 through 18. This is, this is important because you, if you're not very familiar with the fact that Paul and Barnabas had a contention between the two of them. And the contention between Paul and Barnabas was so sharp that in their missionary engagements, they actually broke fellowship momentarily. And that's when Barnabas decided to take with him John Mark. That's when Paul decided to take Silas as a co-laborer in Christ. Now, the contention was over the fact that John Mark was, in my opinion, a very new Christian, a novice, if you will. And he was, he was full of, um, he had so much to learn. And Barnabas thought, this is going to be a wonderful thing. Let's take this young kid with us and let's mentor him and train him. Paul said, no way, we're not going to. He took him one time and he quit. He turned around and went home. And so when they got ready to start again, Barnabas brings it up. Paul says, no way, I'm not taking that boy with us. He quits on us. He's not going to be any good to us. The contention was so sharp that they parted company. Paul was not only confrontational with, with Barnabas, but he was also confrontational with Peter. And every time I read this particular passage, I'm reminded of that, and I want them to get these scriptures on here. The Bible says, but when Peter was come to Antioch, and Paul is speaking, he said, I withstood him to the face. The arguments that they were having at this particular time between the two of them 
were not little things. And uh, Peter was trying to, at one point, play both sides of the game. He was trying to please the Jews. He was trying to please the Gentiles. And there's a scripture in James that says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Paul was offended by the fact that Peter was trying to appease both camps, if you will, one by law and one by grace. And so when Peter came to Antioch, the Scripture says this, and I make reference to it because Paul and Barnabas had a similar discrepancy between the two of them, but he also had issue with Peter. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Well, before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Now, I pause here and say this. Imagine this sermon being preached to Peter. Because that's exactly what Paul is doing. And he's not having a private conversation either. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith of Christ and not by works of the law. But by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. And this last verse here, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. So the thing is this. Just as Paul and Barnabas had issues between themselves, Paul and Peter had issues. And it was so sharp between Paul and Peter that the Scripture is clear when the Word says, I withstood him to the face. That means he got up in Peter's face. Eyeball to eyeball and had this conversation. He is saying, Peter, you have been redeemed by grace. And uh, he was challenging him on the efforts that Peter was making to at times go back under the law and then live under the gospel of grace too. But the thing that I want you to see is this. And Second Peter chapter 3, I say all of that to make clear to you the opening statements that are in verse number 15, 2 Peter 3, verse 15. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Look at this. I thought this very interesting. Even as our beloved brother Paul. Now, why is that significant, preacher? Well, you can easily see 
that pride had long ago left the heart of Peter. Peter is now referencing him as a beloved brother. You know, sometimes when we as brothers and sisters in Christ, if we get cross with one another, it's very difficult because of pride to do the right thing and to let it go, to forgive, to love, to persevere with one another. Sometimes that's hard. Because what we do, we hold on to grudges. And we, we say, well, because he said that, she did this. I don't want anything else to do with him. If we're not careful, we can turn into a bunch of Hatfields and McCoys. The thing is this. When, Peter, when Paul withstood him to the face, as time rolled by, and it does take time, nothing changes like this. That's part of our DNA. That's how we're wired. But when Paul confronted him, Peter, to the face, through the process of time, Peter had long ago put it aside. In fact, he not only put it aside with Peter, but do you remember when Paul was coming down to the close of his life and he was speaking to Luke, and this is what he said. He said, I'm coming down to the end of my life. He said, but I want you to do something for me. He said, I want you to bring John Mark with you when you come see me. For he is profitable for the ministry. So what happened is Paul let his pride go and allowed John Mark to come and have some lingering fellowship with him. But also here... Peter, in his heart, in his rationale, he's forgiving Paul for embarrassing him, confronting him, calling him out on the carpet, even though Paul was justified in doing that. Now it's all cleared out of the way, and Peter referenced him as beloved. He was saying, Paul is my brother in Christ. I hold no grudges against him. As our beloved Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. And verse 16. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of the things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do other scriptures unto their own destruction, and now again, he was making reference to Paul's epistles because it flooded the world with light. And, but let me say this, for some, the light, the meat, is a hard thing for beginners in the Word. But there's a come, there comes a point in time where we need to leave the milk and go to the meat. But as a new Christian, you just can't, for example, when people first get saved and they come to me and they say, Pastor, what book in the Bible do you recommend that I read? I want to read my Bible every day. I want to study the Word every day. I never say, well, what you need to do is get into the book of Zephaniah. I don't do that. Zephaniah is a wonderful book. I don't have anything against Zephaniah. That's not a place for beginners to start. I typically say, if you really want to read your Bible every day where you can most easily understand it, outside of the Psalms, I would recommend the Gospel of John. Very simple. And so he is saying here there are some scriptures that are very 
hard to understand. He said some people wrestle with it, even unto their own destruction. Verse 17, ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, what, beware, lest you also being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. And let's end this two-year study with verse 18. It says, but grow in grace. I want to speak just a quick moment because there are different dimensions of grace. There are different aspects of grace. There's what is called saving grace. And Ephesians teaches us that. For by grace are you saved through faith. There is a dimension of saving faith. Then there, there is the element of God's sovereign grace. God's sovereign grace is different than his saving grace. Sovereign grace helps us to overcome the obstacles in our life. And we all have obstacles. But beyond God's sovereign grace, there is what is called sustaining grace. Sustaining grace is given, I believe, to every single believer who is about ready to make the crossing. When a person is standing on the banks of the chilly Jordan, do you remember the scripture? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will feel no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. A, a believer can make the crossing with peace because God gives them dying grace. I've never, ever in my almost 50 years of ministry, and I cannot tell you how many bedsides I have stood around with people, me holding their hand, made the crossing. But I've never heard a believer scream out to me in the final seconds of their life and say, I regret all that I did for Christ. Here I stand, helpless and hopeless. I've never had anybody say those kind of things to me as a believer making the crossing. But I have had people who were making the crossing would say things like this. Can you see it? Can you see him? Can you see them? I've had many people to declare those kinds of things with me. So there is, a, there is what is called sustaining grace, a dying grace. Then there's sufficient grace. And a sufficient grace from God enables us to face any barrage of problems that come our way. And so when you think about this, he says, Peter said, but grow in grace. There's saving grace, sovereign grace. There's sustaining grace, dying grace. There's sufficient grace. And I want to close this study by saying this. God's grace is just amazing. Amen. Amen. And the word says this. And in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Well, when we come to a place like this and we end a two-year study, it's hard to believe that it seems as though it's just flashed before us. But certainly it has. And uh, we, we're going to embark on another study here in just a moment. And So if you're looking at your scriptures tonight, turn with me to the mighty book of Revelation. Now this is a powerful book. And I, I don't minimize an ounce of it. It's very, very difficult. We'll be here for a long time. And I, I, there, there is so much to lay in, in the groundwork of this. So much to talk about in the opening 
statements that we have here in just six minutes. But I think they're worthy to talk about as we get ready to launch into verse 1. But let me say this, that most of the time, in fact, most of the people that I talk with about this book, most people reflect the book of Revelation and they assume it to be called the book of the apocalypse. And I certainly agree with that. And I think that we are moving towards what is known and referenced as the apocalypse at warp speed. I believe that with all of my heart. And I want to, I wrote down a couple of things early on in the preparation of this study that perhaps you can identify with some dynamics of where we are in life which I think helps reveal to us the apocalyptic day and age that we live in. How, how did we get here? How, how are these things unfolding right before our very eyes? I jotted down the rebirth of the nation of Israel in 1948. I don't have time to go back and preach or re-preach the prophecy sermon that we talked about recently. But I think probably everyone in here tonight understands clearly that the rise in Russia to the status of a world power has not been by accident. I think it's definitely been proclaimed by the scriptures and prophesied. And I do believe that Russia is, is one of the leading factors in igniting what I believe to be the Third World War. And not only the rising status of Russia, but also the awakening of China and many of the other nations in the Orient, how all of these nations are becoming hostile, almost harmoniously in concert together. Now, each one of these have had issues with Israel. But I believe that we're living today to see the rise of, of these hostile communists. That's a word you don't hear much about anymore. But believe me, the world is still full of communism. But some of these communist countries now, they're, it's, it's like in an upheaval. And all of it, I mean, did you hear just this week that Iran now has made a deal with Saudi Arabia? You heard that? Russia's trying to take over the Ukraine. Soon China will launch missiles against Taiwan. All of these things that are happening, wars and rumors of wars, all of it's escalating towards a harmonious concert of communist countries against the nation of Israel. There has never been on the earth the united Efforts and hatred, even among Muslims, towards Israel as we have seen it today. Then we could spend time, which I'm not going to take time, talking about the 
economical deterioration on a global scale. But we're living in a time where every wrong has becoming acceptable with no boundaries, absolutely none at all. But not only that, we're seeing the rampant buildup of, of apostasy. I'm talking about thousands and thousands of churches who are embracing apostasy. We can talk about all of the upheaval that, and the vast changes that are going on in the Roman Catholic Church. Who, and believe me, I'm not promoting Catholicism by any means, so don't interpret it to be that. But we're seeing some, some trends now moving into that denomination that a few years ago were earth-shaking. I, when I, as a pastor, prepare my sermons and I prepare my teaching and I do study and research, I'm seeing right now, I don't know how much you have invested in time in this, but I'm seeing a revival in the occult. So you think about this. Everything that I have mentioned tonight, when you put all of these things together and they are moving at warp speed, the common thread with all of it is a hatred towards Israel. Then, then it convinces me when people say that Revelation is the book of the apocalypse, I can truly say to you that I agree with that. That's where we're moving. And so it is, I believe, believed by me. I think that you can agree with it as well. Um, that if any explanations that the church can give, the pastors can give to these catastrophic things that are happening on the globe. I believe there's one book in the entire Bible that can bring clear, defined explanations, and that is this book of Revelation. And so as we begin tonight, with, and we're in our, my time is gone already, I, I want to mention just one or two things as we are now officially in this study. The book of Revelation was written in, in the year A.D. 96. And the Roman emperor at this time, his name was Domitian. You've heard probably of the barbaric ruler called Nero. At this particular time, when John was exiled to Patmos, this ruler, his name was Domitian, and he had... He had demanded that all public worship, all of it, would be rendered around himself. Domitian, he wanted to be the Lord of everybody's life, and he wanted to be their God. He wanted to be worshipped. And as a result of this, many Christians, and you have to remember that the church was virtually just beginning, and so many Christians refused to worship this man. They refused to call him Lord. They refused to call him God. They refused to worship him. And as a result of that, let me close with this statement tonight. As a result of that, that is, it's what has been considered to be the second great wave of persecution in the church because horrific things were already happening, but it, it just seemed to be taken up a notch. 
You remember when King Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament, he set up an image of himself. The scripture says in the plain of Dura, he had commanded that everybody would be gathered in this vast plain. He got some type of makeshift orchestra together, and he said, when the music starts, he said, I want everybody to fall on their face. I want everybody to bow down. I want everybody to worship me, the golden image that I have set up in the plain of Durham. You know the story that when the music started, everybody fell on the ground. Everybody began to wail and worship this image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And when the dust settled, There were three Hebrew boys still standing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was a catastrophic day and time for Christians, believers in God in that era. But also in this particular era where John was exiled and many Christians lost their lives and suffered brutal deaths hostile deaths, because they would not bow down to this man. This is one of the reasons why John was exiled to Patmos. We'll pick it up again. I keep looking at that clock, and it's, it seems like I'm getting two minutes and three minutes beyond time here, but I got people that are hollering at me already. They don't know that I can hear it, but I'd hear. Can you all hear those children over there running down the hallways and in the gym? They can say, preacher, we can't. We can't keep these kids quiet for so long now. That's what they say sometimes when I go over on Sundays. Anyway, it is what it is, amen? Listen, it's the book of Apocalypse. This book is a powerful book. I would encourage you to bring something to take some notes on because what we're going to talk about is going to blow your mind. Um, and you, you need to write some of this stuff down so you don't forget it. You listen to Pastor Tony Cahoot. For more information, visit our website at BufordRoadBaptistChurch.com.